Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the history of engagement rings, white wedding dresses and the evolution of marriage. Exploring Europe, the United States and beyond in the company of Alexis de Tocqueville. And when the show Law and the Idea of Liberty in Ireland from Magna Carta to the present day. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we discussed the leadership and legacy of Margaret Thatcher and debated her impact on British politics and society. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website, News talk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with a feminist history of marriage. A new book provides an intimate and accessible examination of the history of marriage around the world and it explores themes such as the pressure to marry, the politics surrounding proposals, as well as issues such as taking a man's name, the nuances of marriage vows and obedience and the fight to have an enduring marriage. The book is called Wedded Wife, A Feminist History of Marriage. It's published in hardback by Orem. And I'm delighted to be joined by the author, Rachel Lennon, social history curator, to talk to me about her new book. And Rachel, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You begin the book with your own decision to get married. And can you tell us why you decided uh, to marry your now wife? Uh, You said you were ruled by the heart more than the head. Yes, I think that's right. And I think probably that's true of most people. (laughs) Um, Taking the leap and... um making the choice to marry but yeah I was interested in the idea of marriage as something that I I think I'd always wanted to get married and had this really positive idea and then you know fell in love and um and it just felt like the natural next step and I didn't really overly question it it was just it just felt like the right thing to do but then I it's off the back of my mind I had this sense of um you know as a curator and a historian I had this sense of this dark history of the institution of marriage and particularly, you know, the idea that, you know, marriage has been used to oppress women for, for, you know, centuries, millennia, and the idea that same-sex couples have been excluded from marriage for so long. And so there is this sort of darkness to it. And I I really wrote the book as a, um, a chance to interrogate that a bit and to think about, you know, why why did I still want to do it? And to like to look into the the history and think a bit about I suppose I thought of it as kind of the good, the bad and the ugly of marriage. So kind of the good stories and, you know, why we keep doing it and those kind of darker histories and, and some of the things that um, we still do in marriage today that are kind of darker legacies from the past and to, to, to just interrogate all of that and, um, yeah, think about my own choices. And it shows how marriage has evolved and continues to to mm. evolve and be redefined. And uh, uh, because, as you say, when you look back at some of those traditions, and some of them still survive, and we can talk about mm. that. But uh, even the traditions going back to the idea of of, of how a man proposes, it's uh, some of them are very much rooted in very old fashioned ideas about mm. men and women and society. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And I think what's really interesting around um, traditions and, and just our idea of the traditional is that so many of us have inherited this really narrow idea of what traditional is. But actually, the more I researched for the book, the more I found that there's no such thing as one traditional way to make any of these choices. You know, marriage has existed in almost every society known to recorded history. And anthropologists really struggle to define it because there's such diverse practices. So, you know, we have monogamy in some places, but polygamy is a massive part of the history of marriage. And yeah, some places it's been very tightly defined. I mean, for a long time in the West, it's been tightly defined as sort of a man and a woman. But actually, same-sex marriages have taken place on every populated continent. So there's this really broad history. But yeah, the traditions that we've come down to us tend to be sort of quite narrow. And I think within that, it's also interesting that lots of them are very constructed. So we think, yeah, you know, a man going down on one knee to 
pop the question and propose to a woman is the traditional way to do it. But really that idea of a proposal event, you know, kind of choreographed moment where, um, yeah, where the question's asked is pretty recent. So until sort of, it's a very 20th century idea. But before that, really, the proposal was more of a, um, a conversation and an exchange and it could go either way. It wasn't a sort of, um, yeah, an event that had been created to be shared in a celebration. It's really Hollywood. And, and then even within the 21st century, I feel like social media has put this emphasis on the proposal event that wasn't really there before. It was more of a negotiation and exchange. And certainly within working class communities, you know, there wouldn't have been a kind of, yeah, down on one knee, diamond ring, <laughs> pop the question. It would have been a really practical decision for most people. So, yeah, I feel like the, um, we think of these things as very traditional and narrow when maybe actually the tradition's not that old. Well, the same way you mentioned the diamond engagement ring, and that's something that we probably would think goes back centuries and is such an integral mm-hmm. part of the tradition. But actually, in some ways, that's a a modern marketing uh, stunt mm-hmm. to convince people that this is what is required. Yeah, it's this of the strongest example, really, of all of it, of how traditions can be very much manufactured and uh, constructed. Yeah, so the um, diamonds became associated with engagement and proposal and engagement rings in the middle of the 20th century, really not very long ago at all. And it was in response to a supply and demand crisis in the diamond industry. So there was an oversupply um, for lots of different um, reasons to do with stockpiling and, you know, the discovery of new sources in South Africa. And so the diamond industry found it had all these diamonds that the value was dropping for and engaged a New York-based marketing company to come up with a campaign. And the, um, that marketing company came up with the idea of diamonds are forever. And a diamond is, you know, the perfect way to mark your proposal engagement. And, and really, yeah, our idea of the diamond engagement rings really sprung from there, really constructed tradition. One of the traditions that I've always found, you know, very weird and uh, especially in the modern day, why people still do it is the asking permission uh, of the of, of, of the father. And it just seems so archaic. But you show how it kind of goes back to the days when, as your subheading says, what's love got to do with it in the chapter that a lot of these marriages had very little to do with love and they had to do with various commercial arrangements and financial arrangements. And that's why the father was being brought in. Yeah, yeah, especially in um in families with money or power or land, um, you know, there was marriage was an opportunity to expand that, and but also, um, a bit of a threat. You know, you needed to make sure that you were consolidating your position through marriage traditions and um, marriage practices. So, um, yeah, and I always think when I think of this of asking permission, I always think of um, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet <laughs> and the conversation that. Um, Juliet's father has with Paris when Paris goes to Juliet's father to ask permission to propose to Juliet and they they, they plan the whole wedding <laughs> they, you know they make the commitment they make the choice it's not it's not Juliet's choice the idea that she has a say in it is really um, a bit of a cursory nod the power lies with her father and he says you know if you be mine I'll give you to my friend if not hang beg starve die in the streets and it's really clear who where the power lies and I think I, when I think about um, men continuing to ask fathers permission to propose to women today, I, I always think of that sort of dark history that it's thought of as quite romantic today, but really you don't have to look very deeply into this history for it to seem less romantic. And and yeah, that this idea of um, fathers having permission and fathers giving away, you know, walking down the aisle, being given away, you know, who gives this woman to be married to this man is a very old tradition and really is as old as patriarchy. <laughs> it's what patriarchy is, the idea that, you know, women don't inherit, women don't have power in themselves. They pass from the, the control of one man into another man on marriage. It's also undermined and made even more ridiculous by the fact that if the father was to say no, they'd probably just say, almost certainly would say, well, we actually don't need your permission and we're going to do it anyway. So this was just a courtesy. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it's it's not even that they actually are giving the, the father any responsibility. So they're going through this kind of ridiculous thing, but it's really just a, a charade. Yeah, it's interesting that how that sort of power shifted over um, the last couple of centuries and it's quite there have been these leaps forward in the history of marriage with you know big reforms but 
a lot of the changes, it's big, deep cultural change. It takes time. And so the power is very subtly shifted from, yeah, really the power lies with the father and it's his choice. And, you know, you have a polite conversation with the bride-to-be to the, yeah, the exact opposite where, you know, there's, the father doesn't tend to have permission now. Women aren't dependent on their fathers in the way in families as they were. There are, there are lots of safety nets. Women definitely, generally in the West, women have a lot of... Um, a lot more choice and power, but yeah, I think we still we're so reluctant to let go of the traditional. I think weddings and proposals make us very nostalgic, and we we sort of hang on to the the traditional, or maybe even just assume that the traditional is good without really interrogating it a bit more deeply. What about the big day itself then, and the idea of it becoming such a big day, and that so much pressure and stress seems to then accumulate with it, and uh, more and more money seems to get spent, and people seem to, you know, perhaps spend money that they don't have, and that creates further yeah. tensions, and with families contributing, but like it all seems to be all these extra elements that, mm. you know, kind of goes away from what it should really be about. Yeah, and again, this is it's relatively recent, so. Um, amongst the very wealthy and powerful, and particularly the sort of royal or aristocratic, there have always been these big celebrations and displays of wealth and, and power. Harry and Meghan, I now invite you to join hands and make your vows in the presence of God and his people. I, Harry, take you, Megan. I, Harry, take you, Megan. To be my wife. To be my wife. To have and to hold. To have and to hold. From this day forward. From this day forward. For better, for worse. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. To love and to cherish. Till death us do part. Till death us do part. I, Megan, take you, Harry, to be my husband. To be my husband. To have and to hold. To have and to hold. From this day forward. From this day forward. Till death us do part. Stand by me. Stand by me. Queen Victoria's was the ultimate um, wedding for that. And that's really set a bit of a template for what we think of as traditional in a lot of the West today. So, you know, she wore the big white dress. She had an enormous cake, lots of guests. Um, early photography um, was around the time of her wedding. And, and so there has been this um, habit of the wealthy and powerful making these big statements. But actually, outside of that, and for most people, there just wasn't the money to do that. Like it, you would you would have a celebration with the resources you had available, um, but there wasn't as much pressure. Yeah, as you were saying, exactly pressure on the big day. And I think that really is it's a consumerist thing, isn't it? Again, it goes back to that kind of 20th century marketed machine um, consumerist expectations. You know, keeping up with the Joneses, the idea that you know they've done it, it's desirable. We should do that. There's a right and a wrong way to do this, and and the kind of, kind of the pressure is built around that, and sort of mid-20th century you have the dawn of modern marketing and then now in the 21st century you have social media so you know you're always seeing the the best examples of other people's choices and it, it does build a pressure but I think that bubble is beginning to burst I think particularly with environmental awareness and you know people travel in long distances to wear outfits once that then become wasted and you know single-use plastic in your decorations and I feel like we are maybe coming to coming to the end or the, the pinnacle height of that kind of practice. And what about the different types of ceremonies? Because you have the, the traditional religious church ceremony, mm. you have mm. humanist ceremonies that are increasingly popular, you have the, the registry office and so on, that you often find that people who may not go to Mass at all, may not be religious or believe, they prefer the church ceremony because they like the, the pomp and ceremony and the, the atmosphere of the, of the building rather than a registry office. So sometimes that plays into it as well. And I think that goes back to that idea of becoming quite nostalgic around weddings. And as soon as it, you know, you get to that proposal time, it feels like all of a sudden everything traditional becomes romantic. And 
And we sort of we slip into the habits that we've inherited. And you think of your sort of your parents' wedding or your grandparents' wedding, and you look back and um, the period dramas or you know Disney. Like it's really easy to get um, swept away in this sort of these ideas that we see in our childhood and think you know that's oh that's that's what I think of that's what I want. Um, but really, again, if you go back sort of further, particularly in working communities, the wedding ceremonies were very simple for a long time. You know, centuries and centuries. It was really based on consent or so two people coming together and giving their consent to marry each other. You know, well, most working people for, for a lot of the early modern period, you know, they couldn't afford a church wedding. They, they were getting married in their barns or houses or, you know, just making that commitment to each other. And I think we're kind of we're going back. We're beginning to sort of strip it back a bit more to think about that and to sort of to refocus of the two people at the centre and kind of that, that choice and that commitment that they're making. Do we have Queen Victoria to blame for the emphasis on uh, the woman wearing a white dress? We do, <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, for so much, but yes, including the white dress. Um, yeah, so again, we're amongst royals, um, before Victoria, there were white dresses worn, but really that was a statement of wealth. You know, before washing machines, before mass-produced soaps, um, white is a really, really impractical fabric <laughs> to wear. So it was white was always going to be a bit of a statement of wealth. So there, there were white dresses before Victoria, but she is the one that really um, made it take off. And and it's not just the sort of the white colour which became quite associated with the idea of purity and these very Victorian values um, that were attached to it. But it's also even the shape. If you think of a, you know, if you ask people to just, you know, doodle a wedding dress, a bride's dress, it's even quite a Victorian shape. You know, you clinch in at the waist, full length gown, and it, it's really stuck. And again, that sort of went out of fashion for quite a bit of the 20th century uh, and then has again really taken off and through you know American cultural colonialism and these um, these bigger ideas and all ideas of Hollywood and um, and that kind of thing it's it's been exported around a lot of the world so even in East Asia you have brides wearing more traditional dress and then having a photo shoot in a white wedding dress so you know a white gown might be part of the day it's really, really taken off from, yeah, what was really one one woman's choice in the 19th century in England. And you mentioned Hollywood there, and I suppose connected mm. to that is what celebrities do as well, mm. and that so much becomes about trying to imitate that in terms of various outfit changes and increasingly elaborate designs. And it seems to be more about uh, making these statements of wealth or I don't know what it is, rather than the actual statement of this is the person I love. Yeah, it's so easy to get carried away. <laughs> I think that's true. I, I mean, even in my wedding planning, I found that you do get swept away in other people's expectations. And whether that sort of comes to you from celebrity and, you know, television film or social media or from your family, I think people do feel the weight of expectations when they're planning their wedding. It's one day. It's not just one day. It's the big day, your big day. There is a lot of pressure around it that is a pretty recent phenomenon. And what about divorce then? How has that changed how people view marriage? A Hollywood ending. The famous couple the tabloids dubbed Tomcat is calling it quits as Katie Holmes files for divorce from Tom Cruise after five years of marriage. Speculation swirling. That blockbuster breakup, Angelina Jolie filing for divorce from Brad Pitt. So many questions this morning about what went wrong and what it means for the couple's six children. This is the first time in modern political history that the palace have had to announce the separation of the heir to the throne. But both the Prince and Princess of Wales went ahead with their engagements today as if to show that they have continuing, albeit separate, roles to play. The decision to make the announcement today, though, appears to have been taken very much at the last moment, possibly because the news appeared to be leaking out. Uh, I suppose the fact that you now have increasing numbers of, of second and third marriages. So uh, mm. does that change how people then view the institution itself? Um, in, in some ways, I think it it has. And it's a, it was in the kind of second half towards the end of the 20th century that divorce became accessible really on a big scale. And there was a, there's a big moment um, around the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s where in a lot of the West, divorce became accessible on the basis of irreconcilable differences. So we sort of said, actually, it doesn't have to be that someone's done something wrong. You know, there's been someone at fault, there's been adultery or abuse or you know, something really negative. Actually, this marriage just isn't working. And I think that's really 
that really recognised ideas that already existed around marriage that you know we we want to be happy in our marriages we want to thrive in our marriages and um, divorce has existed throughout all of the history of marriage or divorce or annulment or the idea that you know some people will have the opportunity to escape it and generally that was something that the wealthier people could um, and again in some of the working classes you could separate quietly um, but the law was very strict around it for a really long time and you know you have in my research, I found so many really horrible stories of women trapped in marriages. And particularly in the kind of 18th, 19th century, there was the tradition in, that had emerged in, it was really Anglo-Norman law, but then, you know, rooted in England and then Britain and then through British colonialism, you know, through Ireland, America, um, Australia, New Zealand, just around so much of the world. So this tradition emerged that wives essentially belong to their husbands and they lost their rights and their autonomy as an individual person. So it was called their civil death. So even in ancient Rome, wives had the equivalent sort of rights to a child, to their children. But in actually in British tradition and British law throughout the world, um, women had less rights than their children. They just they didn't exist legally separate from the children. So that led into all the things like, you know, you couldn't hold property. You had no rights over your children. Really, really grim. Um, you couldn't sue or be sued. You, you know, vulnerable to, to abuse. And, and there was no escape. So I think it was really in the 19th century that um, there were a number of really prominent campaigners and particularly women who were stuck um, trying to seek a way out and then drawn into public attention to the idea that this isn't okay. Um, yes, yeah, so you've got women like Mary Eleanor Bowes so at the end of the 18th century, start of the 19th century. She's one of the wealthiest women in Europe um, at one time and then tricked into marriage um, by her then husband, who'd staged a duel. It's, it's an amazing story. I feel like it should be made into a film. Staged a duel and pretended to be dying so that she would marry him and then made a miraculous recovery and then um, took all of her wealth. He owned all of her wealth and she tried to escape. She eventually, when she did manage to get out of the house and get away, she had to, she couldn't pay her lawyers. She had to depend on her servants for money because her money was his money. So she was paying his legal campaign because even though, you know, he was relatively penniless when they married, everything became his. So these, I think these sort of stories of really um, dark experiences of people not being able to escape marriages went through all the way into the sort of women's liberation movement in the 1970s and I think by the time we could access divorce more easily there was you know I think most people could see that you know it was a, it wasn't a good thing for people to be trapped in these relationships. We introduced civil partnerships in Ireland in 2011 and some people said oh marriage will be destroyed and it will fall apart and then four years later in 2015 we had a referendum and voted to introduce marriage equality and have a full marriage equality and again some people said this will destroy marriage and it will all fall apart. Now I haven't really been closely monitoring it but it seems in the last eight years that marriage hasn't fallen apart in Ireland and that things don't seem to have changed very much so it kind of shows how uh, people can uh, scaremonger and and think that an institution can't evolve or can't be redefined, but actually it happens and and life goes on. The provisional result of the referendum had yesterday on the proposal in the 34th Amendment of the Constitution Marriage Equality Bill is as follows. Leonum law nevoti a kahu milyun nige dalzanimila shakke fisakuik. Total poll, 1,949,725. Total valid poll, 1,935,907. Leader of the Evolvering Cobra, Milun, Gawkeg Sahin Mila, Shehe Dabzashat. Votes in favour of the proposal. 1,201,607. Yes, and I think, again, in my research, it was really clear that marriage has always reformed and always moved on, and it's never been static. And that goes back to that idea that we have inherited these really tight definitions of what marriage is that really don't reflect this very broad, very deep history of a diverse institution throughout the world. And 
yeah, there's not one traditional way to do anything. And same-sex marriages have always taken place around the world. And it's really, it was the rise of Christianity and then Christian colonialism that really um, repressed them. But even then, you know, we had these relationships that, um, same-sex relationships that existed in models of marriage, even though they weren't recognized by the state. So you have the ladies of Langoffin, um, Irish women who'd moved over to Wales and lived together for decades um, in a, what we would recognize really as a marriage. It, it just wasn't seen that way by the state. And um, yeah, I really, I really found a lot of resistance to change throughout, um, throughout the evolution of marriage. You know, every victory for women's rights, every move towards equality was fiercely fought against and fiercely fought for. But your marriage really, I think, survives through reform. If it, the more static it becomes, the more likely it is to, to not survive, to not be relevant to most of the population. So it's, yeah, it's through reform that it's continuing to keep its relevance. Well, my thanks to Rachel Lennon for joining me tonight to talk about Wedded Wife, A Feminist History of Marriage, her brilliant new book. It's published in hardback by Orem. And Rachel, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. The United States was just one of the many places documented by the inveterate traveller Alexis de Tocqueville and a new book follows Tocqueville's voyages by sailing ship, stagecoach, horseback, train and foot across Europe, North Africa and of course North America and in doing so it sheds new light on the depth and range of his political and cultural commentary. The book is called Travels with Tocqueville Beyond America. It's published in hardback by Harvard University Press. The author is the brilliant Jeremy Jennings and Jeremy, welcome back to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you again. Now, I think we will start with America because it is the most famous of the journeys and it's the one that has huge significance because of his book, Democracy in America. But of course, as the book shows, there's a lot more uh, than just the American trip. But why is that American trip so significant? Well, I think it's significant because the most outstanding product of that journey is arguably the most famous and best book ever written about the United States. And that was, that. I mean, he went to write a book about prisons, or that was the official reason he went to America, and at some point decides, hmm, there's something else to write about here. It could be a democracy. By democracy meant, in a sense, what he saw as a future for most everyone. So that's, 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 that's why I think we focus on that trip, because it, it, it produces a great book. And of course, in Ireland, we're also familiar with the, the visit he made to this country along with Gustave de Beaumont and a very interesting study of that as well. And you get insights into politics, society and uh, approaching crises and so on. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that was only recently discovered in actual fact is that his, one of his elder brothers, Edouard, visited Ireland in the 1820s. Uh, he did a trip to England, Scotland and Ireland. And it's quite clear that um, Tuckle looked, read, read the manuscript the brother wrote and became fascinated by Ireland um, as early as that. And so when they came, when he came to England the second time, um, he and Bohorn decided to go, go to Ireland. And that, again, had a lasting impact upon, uh, upon him. I mean, deeply shocked, both were deeply shocked by what they saw. And of course, you know, and your listeners will know, later on, Bohorn himself wrote one of the standard and great books about Ireland in the 19th century. So tell us about the Tocqueville then. Who exactly was he? How did he go from being this person from a, an aristocratic French background to getting involved in politics to then deciding to, to really explore all of these different parts of the world? Well, that, it's very interesting because, uh, yes, you're quite right, he, he was a French aristocrat. There was, um, I mean, a tradition of, 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 of travel within the family. As I say, the elder, one of the elder brothers um, travelled to um, England, Scotland and, and Ireland. Um, as a young man himself, um, uh, Tocqueville travelled to Italy and to Sicily. That, of course, is all part of. The, we're still talking the days of the Grand Tour, where a young aristocrat would be expected to be familiar with the glories of Renaissance Italy, the classical world, um, and so on. But it's quite clear that although he was a man who loved home and he was very deeply attached to, you know, his, his family estate in the Cherbourg Peninsula and all that that entailed, the breeding of cattle and pigs and all of those sorts of things, he was clearly someone who, for whom travel was very, very important. And he would often write, oh, gosh, I'm so, so bored here, you know, and, and so on and so forth. I really, really want to go somewhere. And he strongly believed that if he was going to write about something, he had to go there. So he, he would have loved to have written books about Russia 
and India, two countries which fascinated him, but he knew he'd never go there, and so he said, well, I'm not going to write about them, but you know, he was absolutely determined. He just simply thought, you know, you had to go and you had to see, see the place, you had to see the people, speak with as many people as possible, and then, in a sense, learn, learn, learn from that. So he clearly, you know, he really enjoyed the experience of travel, despite the fact that virtually on every journey he took, he was very ill. He was not a man of you know, great physical um, um, health. He almost dies in America, almost dies in Algeria, and so on. Nevertheless, he still comes back for more. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't give up on, the, the, on, on travel. He's always determined to keep moving, to keep learning and to keep finding out how, how societies work, how uh, democracy rises and uh, the challenges that these societies face. Well, that's right. And you're quite right to say you know, how democracy rises because all of these, all of these journeys, in a sense, are, are made in, you know, to answer the big, the big questions that fascinate him. And that is about the future of you know, our societies. And all of that is seen in the framework of this inevitable, as he sees it, inevitable rise of democracy as a social state, certainly across the Western world, seeking to answer a series of questions which remain with him throughout his life. You mentioned the visit to Algeria. It's interesting to look at his own kind of, I'm not going to say maybe prejudices, but his own background influences him because he supports the French colonial settlement there. Correct. I mean, that's it, that, that, it's the Algerian stuff, which is by far the most controversial part of you know, his life, really. Um, and you know, he's a parliamentary deputy at the time. Um, and he follows. He follows. You know what was actually, you know, a pretty disastrous um, intervention in Algeria from the outset, and which remained disastrous for the next 150 years. Uh, he follows. He follows that. Um, he's immediately intrigued by the possibilities that Algeria might provide for France. Remember that, that France lost its first empire in the, in, the, in the 18th century, really following the Seven Years' War. You know, it loses. It loses Canada and um, and, and India and so on and so forth. So, it, it, and then there's, then there's a great you know, attempt at the Napoleonic Empire. That comes from So, in the early 19th century, France doesn't have an empire. And increasingly, the view was if you're a serious power, you have to have an empire. You know, it was a great age of empire building. France didn't have one. Algeria appeared to offer the possibility of doing so. Along with that, there come lots, there come lots of other things. I mean, he was not, Topher was, was quite clearly not, 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 not a racist. Um, but he did believe that Christian civilization was superior to Islamic civilization um, and, and, and so on. So, you know, there, there, there are lots of uh, things he writes about Algeria where it takes some, um, you know, they're difficult to, to, to well, you can't, you cannot justify them, but let's put it that way. What did he make of England? England fascinates him. As, you know, you can say of the 19th century, it was, it was you know, the British century, the English century, I mean, England was a world power. Um, and so, in a sense, everyone was fascinated by, by by how this small island was becoming so powerful, and so on. And many, many French, as with America, many French people visited America. Many French people came to Britain uh, to see what they saw again as this emerging sort of new civilized industrial civilization. They went to Birmingham, they went to Manchester, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so he does that. He, he he does that. But what really intrigues? One of the things which intrigues him so much is, in a sense, England seems to be the odd case, because where, right, everywhere else is seeing the advance of democracy, England seems to be holding democracy back. And why is it, how is it doing that? It's doing that because it has this still very powerful and successful aristocracy, and that intrigues it. What's so special about this English aristocracy that that makes it still, in a sense, the dominant political power, the dominant social power, and, and, and so on and so forth. This further intrigues him, of course, because, as we, as we know, that English aristocracy, which he so admired, was the, exactly the same aristocracy that was impoverishing oppressing Ireland. These were the same, these were the same people. And yet in one place, it seemed to be so successful, and in the other country, it was an absolute abomination. So he's absolutely fascinated by that. And of course, he is an aristocrat himself, so he, he's able to move in the circles of English aristocracy. He's charmed by them, as most everyone has been and still is, um, and, and so on and so forth. So it's that, and that incidentally, it, when you go back to Beaumont's book, 
Bowman's book on Ireland, again, he's absolutely fascinated by that, this contrast between the forces of democracy in Ireland and the forces of aristocracy um, in England. And Bowman's, again, because they believe ultimately democracy will win, but they believe that ultimately, in a sense, the forces of Irish democracy will, will in a sense, be instrumental in, 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 in the democratisation of Britain as well. So it's, it's really interesting. So it's out, again, again, it shows how Ireland fits in to this broader story, um, which 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 Tocqueville and and his friend Berman want to tell us, which shows that he's very good at diagnosing problems, and he's very good at kind of maybe anticipating future problems and conflicts and tensions. And you see that very much in his analysis of Germany as well, because yeah. he sees the strengths, but he also sees some of the potential pitfalls. Yeah. Correct. Can I say one thing? People tend to forget. But he goes to America, he's still in his 20s. He publishes the first volume of Democracy in America, I think when he's 29. This is a truly astonishing achievement to, to, to have done that, and then to, in the sense to keep up that level of intellectual interest uh, for, for the rest of his life. You're right, in, in the sense you can, you can only, if you make his interest in England, Ireland, so you always say, so the country which really proximizes at the beginning is America, is America, then it's Algeria for about a decade, and then the last decade of his life is Germany. He becomes absolutely fascinated by Germany and realizes, and again, again, following his idea that he's got to go, he has to go, and if he's going to go, therefore he's got to learn German. So the poor man has you know, several you know, agonizing years of trying to learn German, a language he absolutely hated. Uh, and which he never managed to master completely. Uh, but he goes to Germany in, 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 in the 50s and spends enormous time studying Germany in the 50s because, again, he thinks that... He actually says at one point, you know, the book in the... In the, the other great book is a book about the French Revolution, published in 1856. He said, anyone who thinks they could understand the French Revolution by just knowing something about France is mistaken. You can't. You have to see what happened in France in a comparative um, sort of perspective. Uh, and part of that comparative perspective is Germany. And he wants to go because he thinks understanding Germany will enable him to understand so much more about what actually happened in France in the 18th and then this was into the 19th century. Did the book change how you viewed the biography of Tocqueville? Did you get a new insight into into his life and his preoccupations? Yes, I did. And, and that's, I mean, that's you know, the, the origin of, of, of all books is interesting. I think this one was partly inspired by, by that sort of an academic question, which is there, there is a, there's a body of literature, largely by American um, academics, who said, actually, Tocqueville never understood America. He got, he got America wrong. And I thought I, that didn't seem true to me. I just thought, no, no, I don't, 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 I don't, don't buy that. He's bound to have missed some things. Of course he did. But, it's, you know, we read the book precisely because it seems tell us something true. And so I was interested in that academic question, and then that just got me more, more broadly interested in, in, the, in the issue of, of travel. And then, then how did Tocqueville travel? Because, you know, I think we tend to forget that, you know, as you, you began by saying, he travelled on boat, stagecoach, all of these things. Invariably, you know, with terrible things happening, you know, one of his boats, he was, was travelling down the river in America, you know, literally crashed and sank and all of these sorts of things. And, and so I got interested in the whole business of you know, how people travelled and so on, and then how Tocqueville travelled. And I don't really think, if I'm honest, that anyone has really thought you know, really about that side of his character and, and, and what you learn about him from that. And I, th- I think, having read Tocqueville for many, many years, I, I certainly felt I learned a lot more about him as a person um, and about the way he worked and, 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 and so on. So I, f- I found it personally a richly... Um, you know, a rewarding experience and felt, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, he said often you, know, you read someone a lot and you get bored by them and you, you're pleased to see the back of them. I, that didn't happen to me on this occasion. I just became more and more fascinated by him. I came, to be frank, warts and all, um, you know, to admire him more and more. And, um, and I just thought it was you know, they were just the sort of the letter. Most most of the stuff is taken from his letters to friends and so on. And he's a brilliant letter writer, marvelous letter writer, marvelous descriptions of the places he was visiting and so on. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I um, that's 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 what really got me going. I I felt I certainly understand the man a lot better um, than I did before, and I hope um, that people who really take the trouble to read the book will will feel um, similarly about that. 
Absolutely. And in a way, you didn't get bored because he seems to have never got bored either. He had this restless, inquiring mind and he was always he was always wanting to know what was next and where would you where would you explore next and what set of questions right, would you right. would you ask and pose? That's right. And that's true right to the end. I mean the book the book concludes with the last in the sense the last journey which Tocqueville makes. He's got it's got tuberculosis, he's very, very ill. And the idea was to travel down to the south of France. Um, to, for the winter, which a lot of people did at the time if they, if they had TB and so on. This was a disaster. It was a catastrophic journey. I mean, it was traveling by stagecoach in the snow and all of these sort of things. He doesn't, he doesn't recover. And you can read his letters, which are pretty heartbreaking, and also the letters written by Beaumont, because Gustave de Beaumont goes to look after him. Beaumont writes to his wife, and you get these almost like daily letters um, recounting the terrible physical decline of Toffville. But even then, you know, he's, he's still wanting to read and he's sort of saying to his friends, you know, he's a, I can't really read serious stuff anymore, but can, can you send me travel books and things like that? So right right to the end, you know, that he, he's still... And, of course, right virtually to the end, of course, because doctors are lying into it to him. There's that, that idea, I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to be OK. If I get through this winter, I'll be fine, and then everything gets back to normal and we can you know, go, to, go to other places and so on. Of course, that, that's not to be... But right to the end, he's on virtually to the very end. Um, he's still inquiring. Well, it's a wonderful new book by Jeremy Jennings. The book is called Travels with Tocqueville Beyond America, published in hardback by Harvard University Press. And our thanks to Jeremy Jennings for joining us tonight. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. Magna Carta is among the most famous documents in the history of the world, credited with being the first effective check which appears in writing on arbitrary, oppressive and unjust and tyrannical rule. And a new volume in the Irish Legal History Society series of publications is the first to examine the importance of Ireland in the story of Magna Carta's dissemination. The book is called Law and the Idea of Liberty in Ireland from Magna Carta to the Present. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press in association with the Irish Legal History Society the editors are Peter Crooks and Thomas Moore, and I'm delighted to welcome one of the editors, Peter Crooks, to the show tonight. Peter, you're very welcome. Thanks, Patrick. Good to be here. Now, this is a volume that I know very well. I have an essay in it myself. It's a conference that I know very well because I was speaking at it. Can you tell us That's about right. the conference and the idea of, of doing something to mark the, the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta, both for England, for Britain and for Ireland? Sure. Uh, well, the conference that you spoke at took place in 2016, so that was 800 years since Magna Carta first came to Ireland. There was an even bigger set of, sort of global commemorations, even celebrations, the year before 2015, which was 800 years since Magna Carta was granted by King John, famous king, uh, in 1215. But the part of the story that I became interested in, which is to do with how this charter, Magna Carta, gets transmitted to Ireland, that it got lost a little bit in the 12th, 15, 2015 commemorations. So it was fantastic when the Irish Legal History Society decided to do something about that and tell what's a very important and complex story about uh, 800 years of Magna Carta tradition in this island. And it is very complicated, the whole story, even the story in terms of what happened in England, because, as you say, a famously tyrannical king, you have this charter of liberty, but then one that's repudiated as well at the time, but yet becomes this great beacon of liberty and and has a kind of a, a mythological resonance, perhaps far greater than its than its significance at the time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Magna Carta is immediately a failure in 1215. It's imposed on King John. He doesn't want it. It's written as if he's granted it freely, but he absolutely hasn't. His his rebellious barons have forced him to grant these liberties. And they include their right to rebel against them if he goes against the terms of the Charter. So it's an immediate disaster. He writes to the Pope and has this thing annulled and so on. And England is then invaded from France. And it's at that moment in uh, November uh, 1216, just after King John has died and the, uh, the whole uh, situation looks very dark, that a new version of Magna Carta is um, issued. And there's an Irish connection there because the person who issues it is the regent. John's successor is just a very young boy. And the regent is William Marshall, who is also, uh, as well as being regent of England, Lord of extensive lands in Ireland. He's been a sense successor to uh, Strongbow's lands in Leinster. 
Uh, and one of the things that happens shortly after that is Magna Carta gets sent from England across the Irish Sea to Ireland. And that's the very first time uh, in what will become a global phenomenon of the Charter being sort of gifted overseas as a, uh, a grant of the king. And these liberties that are meant for English men are transmitted to English subjects further afield. So let's talk about the Irish version then, this Irish variant. How did it arrive here? And I suppose how authentic is it? Because it didn't have the royal seal. Yeah, I have a view on this. So the Irish version of Magna Carta has these intriguing uh, changes. So where the English one refers, for instance, to the Thames in the Irish version, the Thames becomes the Liffey. And where the English version talks about the city of London is to have all its liberties, in the Irish one, uh, this becomes the city of Dublin. And there's other changes like that throughout it. And it looks as if it makes a lot of sense. And uh, there are still historians who believe that in 12, 16, 17, little changes, little editing projects went on and they created this special Irish Magna Carta and sent it across. My view is that's not actually what happens. They sent across the English version. But it is the case, this is definitely true, that at some point in the 13th century, somebody unofficially, without uh, a proper approval, did make these changes. And that version of the charter with the Liffey and Dublin and so on is copied into what becomes the oldest public record in Ireland. Uh, it's called the Red Book of the Exchequer. That's the document that ended up destroyed in the four courts in 1922. But we have um, quite a lot of copies from it because it was such a famous early, early record. And it's a huge document in terms of its significance, in terms of it's a fundamental statute for Ireland. It's It has an influence in terms of law that it has yeah. an incredible long-term impact all the way up, you could say, to the present. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is still a retained statute. Uh, the whole of uh, the Irish Magna Carta is a retained statute. Uh, and right the way through the centuries from the Middle Ages on, you see it being uh, appealed to, um, reaffirmed, uh, contested by different parties uh, throughout history. Even in the post-2022 um, free state, it has a significant impact on constitutionalism. Different aspects get called upon in uh, quite arcane cases to do with fisheries law, as well as constitutional provisions. But you were right earlier when you talked about this kind of a mythological significance beyond what's actually in the text. That's that's definitely the case, because some of the things that are famous in Magna Carta aren't actually in the text. So, for instance, people think of Magna Carta as the origins of parliamentary democracy. Well, there's no reference to Parliament at all in the text. But there is a reference to the king having to consult if he's going to levy taxation on the realm. And that's, in a sense, the origin of where that kind of consultative system begins. And there are references to um, the king not acting arbitrarily in law. You can't imprison somebody without a lawful judgment and so on. And those are seen as kind of the precursors to due process. So that's the the reason for its totemic significance. But I think what's interesting too in an Irish context is those liberties uh, are very, very closely curtailed. Those are liberties for English subjects. And one man's liberties are another man's chains. And so you see quite clearly from the Middle Ages onwards in Ireland, a kind of exclusionary attitude to liberty, which I think is was a useful, um, uh, say, qualification on some of the celebration that went on in 2015 uh, globally to do with Magna Carta's uh, significance. I think if you look at Magna Carta imperially, uh, there's a different story about imperial subjects and their access to that law. And the essays in the volume are great at exploring some of those paradoxes in terms of how it's received into Irish law and even this this contested idea of liberty and what it means and, and who it should actually apply to. That's right. I mean, right in, into the early modern period, uh, there's a wonderful quote in Colin Kenny's essay about mid-17th century, a time of great turmoil, when a contemporary describes Magna Carta as being prostrated and besmeared and groveling in her own gore. Uh, so it's, you know, a, it's a very emotive text. And then in the 18th century, the period of the ascendancy, it gets appealed to uh, by sort of the Protestant community, the Protestant ascendancy, as its liberties. But again, liberties not extended more widely. So it's a, a time of penal legislation and so on. And it, that continues into the 19th century with uh, social conservative movements that you would know an awful lot about, and uh, on into the 20th century. So it's uh, it's very, very interesting to see how in Ireland, just as elsewhere in England, uh, this text 
has not meant one thing. It's a very malleable text and it has been used by multiple actors for their own purposes. As you show in the introduction and you and Tom that people imagine these liberties and uh, and claim them and, and, and trace it back to Magna Carta and it becomes this rhetorical tool. That's exactly right. I think by even by the late Middle Ages, I think it's rhetoric. It's kind of the idea of Magna Carta is almost more powerful than what it actually says in practical law. But it's a thing to which you can appeal. And it's a very um, potent idea that a ruler uh, should be beneath the law. I mean, that's a message for our own times, too. And it has been used in uh, presidential uh, legal cases until quite recently. And of course, we've had you on before talking about the brilliant Beyond 2022 project and that incredible archival reconstruction project using digital technology and so on. And 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 it's a way of, of recovering stuff that was lost. And one of the things, of course, that was destroyed in that fire in 1922 was the, the Red Book that you've talked to us about. Yeah, exactly. The, it was the earliest public record. It had a near miss in the 19th century so this, uh, the Magna Carta had become so famous that in the early 19th century, I write about it, this as an anecdote in the book, Walter Scott, the famous novelist, the author of Ivanhoe, came to Ireland. And one of the things he wanted to see was this red book of the Irish Exchequer. And I'm sure it's because he'd heard about Magna Carta. Uh, but when he went to ask for it, they couldn't find the book. And it turned out to be upstairs. Somebody had borrowed it and it was in the attic rooms of one of the officers and a, a washerwoman had found it and it was about to be uh, potentially thrown in the fire. It was saved on that occasion, but sadly the original was lost in 1922. But up to two-thirds of us are recoverable. And I think that's kind of a message for the wider potential for recovery with archives more generally. I think there's a, a really rich archival tradition uh, that in a way comes through these common law processes that are laid down in the 13th century. Uh, and it enables us to recover uh, significant amounts of what was lost in that terrible fire. And the wonderful introduction that you and Thomas Moore, your co-editor, have, it's entitled Taking Liberties, Law and the Idea of Liberty in Ireland. And that whole idea of taking liberties, of course, that's what people over the centuries did with this this conception of Magna Carta. Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, the idea that uh, liberties can be taken in the sense that you know, they have to be actually extracted from the ruler, or if they exist, they can be used against the current political system. We see that again and again, not just in Ireland, but there's a resonance of what happens in Ireland uh, in the American colonies uh, leading up to the revolutionary period uh, and much further afield. I think, I think uh, that's uh, absolutely the case. Okay, well, my thanks to Peter Crooks for joining me tonight to talk about a brilliant new collection of essays, Law and the Idea of Liberty in Ireland from Magna Carta to the Present. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press in association with the Irish Legal History Society. The editors are Peter Crooks and Thomas Moore. And Peter, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, me and Patrick. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, to Shannon Murphy on research and to Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we're looking at the history of William Shakespeare's Macbeth and we'll be finding out about witchcraft, murder and madness in the infamous Scottish play. So hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.